0: I want to make a confession to you before we begin tonight. And that is uh, that I don't know if any of you have this problem, but sometimes I have the problem of using uh, inappropriate language, uh, obscene language. Some of you maybe even heard me use this kind of language. Words like sin and hell and Jesus and absolute truth. Uh, they're words that may not seem obscene or inappropriate to you, Uh, For me to use them in front of you, but you try going to your workplace tomorrow and dropping those words into the middle of a lunchtime conversation and see what kind of looks people give you. People treat those kind of words as though they were off limits, as though you shouldn't talk to them using that kind of language. Uh, You're probably more likely in many workplaces to get a strange look for talking about Jesus or about hell than you are for using the F word in the middle of normal conversation. That's just the facts of how it is in this world that we live in. So if you talk about Jesus or talk about hell, people will look at you strange and you may even get in trouble. If you talk about Jesus enough or if you, talk, you speak about hell as a reality enough at your workplace, you may get in trouble for using those words. If you use them as curse words, that's okay. But if you actually attach any meaning to the name Jesus or to the place hell, uh, then you can get yourself in a bit of trouble in work or in school and so on. Here's another dirty word that we're going to think about tonight, a word that our culture thinks is obscene or inappropriate, the word authority. Start throwing around the word authority or the word submission or the word obedience and people get nervous. Some people get more than nervous. Some people get angry that anyone would suggest that there is authority over their lives or that they should submit to one person or another or that they have to obey in this situation or that. If you don't believe that people get nervous and even angry about the idea of authority and submission, just take Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And just post that on the bulletin board at work tomorrow. And then sign your name at the bottom. posted by and put your name. And see what kind of looks you get. See what kind of comments you might get. See if you're not asked to take that sign down because it is offensive to people. People don't like being told what to do. Even Christians, we don't like being told what to do. If I stood up here tonight and started telling you, you need to do this and this and this and this and this, some of you would be thrown on your heels and saying, wait a second, who is he to tell us what we have to do? And that might be one thing if I'm just throwing out ideas about what I think you should do. But the reality is when we read our Bibles... We're constantly confronted with a God who tells us exactly what we have to do. It's not a God who gives us options usually about what we can do. It's a God who says, you shall do this and you shall not do that. And incidentally, some of what God tells us we must do is listen to other people who are going to tell us what we must do. Children, you will obey your parents. Wives, submit to your husbands tonight. Slaves, obey your masters. In our culture, these ideas are extremely radical and sometimes offensive. And so we want to look at another one of these passages tonight that is offensive in our culture, a thought of authority that is often a dirty word in our culture, but is genuine Christianity. So let's read beginning in verse 22 of chapter 3, and we'll read down through chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, if people are uncomfortable with the word authority, if people are, uh, don't like the, the idea of obedience, then they might literally fall out of their chairs when they hear Paul saying, Slaves, obey your masters. And we might fall out of our chairs when we hear that because so much of what we know as culturally right and good comes out of the fact that 150 years ago, this country abolished slavery. And Britain, where uh, many people in this country came from, abolished slavery. And so let's say up front slavery is not God's highest. Uh, ideal for how Christians should live or how the world should operate. And we should be thankful for people like Abraham Lincoln and Harriet Beecher Stowe in this country and a lot of people that we don't know about who helped abolish slavery. We should be thankful for Christians like William Wilberforce in England who helped abolish the slave trade so that slaves couldn't keep being traded even before slavery was abolished. So slavery is not God's ideal, but if it's not God's ideal... We need to ask ourselves, why then does Paul speak about slavery the way he does here in Colossians 3? If slavery is not God's highest idea, why does Paul not just say, slaves, just get rid of your masters, flee from your masters? Why does Paul leave slavery alone? Why doesn't he try to abolish it? Why does he simply say, slaves, obey your masters? We need to think, first of all, about first century slavery in the Roman world. I want to just read to you a paragraph that I read this week in studying for this message from a book called A Short History of the Early Church by a guy named Harry Boer. This is what he says about slavery in the first century. The position of the slave in the Roman Empire often differed markedly from that of slaves in other areas of the world. In other words, it's different than slaves that we read about in uh, 1800s America. Many of the teachers of Roman boys, girls and older students were educated Greek slaves. The slave could occupy a position of trust in the family, in commerce and in the government. The Christian slave was honored as an equal in the fellowship of the church. So what he's saying is many Roman slaves were actually functioning much like employees function now. Some of them were brought in to teach the children in a family. They lived there. They were technically owned by the masters, but they weren't treated like we imagine slaves to be treated uh, in our uh, cultural history. But that wasn't always the case. Some slaves in the Roman context were mistreated. Some of them were abused, both verbally and physically, like we might imagine slavery to be. So that still leaves us with questions. Why does Paul speak the way he does? If slavery is not God's ideal, if sometimes slavery became very ugly and violent, even in Roman culture, why does Paul say things the way he says? What are we to think about Paul and what he says here, especially in light of what we know in our cultural background about slavery? People can trip over this. So I want us to think about that briefly. And I also want us to think about how do we apply these verses? Because we live in a culture now where slavery doesn't exist in the United States of America. There are forms of, of slavery that we hear about in the other parts of the world, such as young girls being being uh, transported out of their homelands as prostitutes into other places in the world. But in our day-to-day context, none of us are threatened with becoming slaves and none of us own slaves. And so we might say, oh, we should just skip over Colossians 3 because it doesn't have anything to say to us. But I think there are several things we can say I want to just give you three observations about slavery, and then and then we'll go on to some practical applications for us. One is that first-century Christianity, um, reading what the way Paul responds here, we can learn that first Christian first-century Christianity was not mainly political or social in its concerns. First, Christ, first-century Christianity's main concern was getting people to heaven. That's why Paul didn't spend a lot of time. Uh, preaching against and speaking against and acting against slavery. Later, Christians would, especially in cultures where the gospel had been spread broadly, like England and America. But at this time, when so many people had never even heard the gospel, Christianity um, was mainly about getting people to heaven, not about improving their lives here on earth. And that should be our goal as well. We think about these people in West Africa that we just heard about that have never heard the gospel. That's a lot more important than making sure that they have all the physical needs that they would like or that we would like them to have. So that's one observation. The second observation is that first century Christians believed that their personal human rights were far less important than obedience to God's word and then adorning the gospel by good behavior. First century Christians, at least in Paul's mind, didn't need to be running around claiming their rights, going to court to say, you can't treat me like this. This isn't fair. That's not what Paul is about here. That's not what he wants the church in Colossae to be about. He wants them to obey their masters to, as obedience to God, but also so that their masters might see Christ has made a difference in these people. Maybe they weren't trustworthy before. Maybe they didn't obey like they should have before. Maybe they tried to run away before, but now that Christ has come into their lives, they're different. And maybe the masters pay attention and they hear the gospel and they are changed as well. And again, I say the same is true for us. Even though we're not in the position of being treated like slaves, we need to realize that our human rights that we think are so important in this country really don't mean beans in eternity. What matters is that we obey God, whether people treat us right or not. What matters is that we obey God, whether it's legal to obey God in this country in 30 years or whether it's illegal. That we don't fight to be treated fairly, that we just walk with God and let the chips fall where they may. So there's two two observations. The third observation about slavery is simply this. That what God has to say to first century slaves and masters, although it's not a direct parallel, has a lot to say to 21st century employees and employers. Because not all the slaves were abused. Some of them were functioning uh, much like employees function today. And some of the masters were functioning like employers function today. So that's the third observation. that There's something to learn for modern day workplace relationships. And this is. This is where I want us to spend the bulk of our time or the rest of our time tonight. So I encourage you to meditate on those first two ideas um, but, and seek more clarity on them. Find other places in the Bible that teach the same thing. Make sure that I'm, I'm not missing the boat. But for the remainder of our time, I'm having trouble speaking tonight. For the remainder of our time, uh, I think God wants us to think about how Christians should behave in their workplace What is Christianity supposed to look like from nine to five? And so that's what we're going to do from these verses. We're going to think about employees and we're going to think about employers, specifically employees. we're going to look at five, we could call them employee policies. These are five things that you could write down. They're short bullet points. And maybe you could put on a piece of paper and stick somewhere at your workplace, either on your desk or on your machine or wherever, so that you can remember how you're supposed to act. And then we'll think about five, or two principles for employers or managers. But first, five things that we can say to employees, five policies that employees ought to put in place for themselves if they are Christians. Number one. The boss is boss, period. If you work in a situation where you have a supervisor, he is your boss, period. That's what Paul says in verse twenty-two, the first half of the verse. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, or as we are as we are applying it for ourselves, employees in all things. Obey those who are your employers on earth. On earth means that they're not your masters in heaven. They can't change your eternal state with God. But when you are at your eight hour shift or your 10 hour shift or your 12 hour shift at your job, your boss is the boss. Period, Paul says. Notice that he uses very black and white language. He uses the phrase in all things. And he uses this black and white word obey. He doesn't just say, listen to, uh, take under advisement what they tell you. He says, in everything that you do while you're at work, obey your boss. And remember, he's talking to slaves who very likely some of them were abused. He's not talking to whiny American employees who have to deal with a cranky supervisor. He's talking to slaves and he's saying to them in everything, obey your boss. That means in every area of our job. And in every minute of our work day, we are to be doing what our boss expects us to do. It also means, as we said with children, with parents last week, that we do what our boss asks us to do right away. We do it all the way and we do it in a happy way or with a good attitude. Right away, all the way, happy way. Does that describe your job performance? If we were to sit down tonight and give you a review, could your boss say, so-and-so always does things right away that I ask. She always does things all the way. She does everything I ask her to do. Doesn't leave things out. And she always does it in a happy way. She's glad to work here and glad to do what she's supposed to do. Are you obeying your boss? Now, are some further applications that I don't think are quite as obvious that we have to think about as well. What does it mean to obey at work, to be a good employee? It means we show up on time. Show up even early. You, know, you, you plan to get there 10 minutes early so that you can't use, oh, there was a traffic accident as an excuse three days out of the week. There's going to be a traffic accident on the interstate or there's going to be some kind of backup most days. So you know that, so plan to get to work 15 minutes early. That's one way. Second is to work a full eight hours if that's your shift or a full 12 hours if that's your shift. If you're supposed to work till four, then work till four. Don't leave at 3.50. Supposed to work till four and you've got five minutes left on some task at four o'clock. Just go the extra mile and work the extra five minutes and finish that task. It's real simple. Give your employer your full day. And also, under that idea, it means that you don't play solitaire at work. You know, or if you work in a factory, you don't have like a cornhole set, set up down one of the side rows so that for a few minutes each day that you fool around on the clock. If you're on the clock, you're working. If you're not working, you're off the clock. Obedient employees also have a submissive attitude. We talked about that already in doing things in a happy way. They follow office protocol. There's a certain way that you're supposed to dress or carry yourself or speak to employees or speak to those that you converse with over the phone and you do what you're asked to do. I'll give you an example of that. When I was uh, in my first year of seminary, I worked at a Napa auto parts store. And... um, After a few weeks there, my boss kind of said, you know, it'd be nice if you would shave every day before you came in. I said, oh, okay, it would be nice if I did that, but I didn't do it. So he's mentioned it a few other times. He wasn't a real forceful or mean guy. Um, One day, I came into work, and in my little area where I kept my stuff, there was an electric razor. And he said, I just got this for you. I just want to keep it here so that each day, if you forget, you can go ahead and shave when you get here. And I was embarrassed, and I should have been. Because he was telling me over and over and over again, part of the protocol of working in here is that you're clean shaven every single morning. And I wasn't doing what he asked me to do. If you have things that you know are expected at work and you don't do them, then you're not obeying what Paul says in verse 22. Obedient employees also don't steal from their company. They don't steal ink pens or notepads. They don't steal parts and so on. Now, somebody say, well, weren't there exceptions to this? Obey and everything mean, what if my boss asked me to break the law? Or what if my boss asked me to deny God? Or what if my boss asked me to harm some other person? And the answer is obviously. In those kind of situations, then you don't obey your boss. But part of, of being willing to be a submissive employee is if your boss asks you to do something that you know that you can't in good conscience do, that you're honest about it and that you're willing to take the consequences. So if your boss asks you to do something and says, if you don't do this, then you're fired. You say, okay, and you don't become a, a, a pain in his side. You just say, if that's the way this office works, then I probably need to work somewhere else. But you don't complain and you don't whine and you don't try to make your rights more important than what God teaches in his word. So. Slaves or employees in all things, obey those who are your masters, or employers on the earth. Or as we said it, the boss is boss, period. Number two, principle that you could write down and put on your desk at work. Play acting is not real work. Play acting is not real work. Second half of verse 22. He says you're going to obey not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing, The Lord. Play acting is not real work. What do we mean by play acting? A few things. You can play act by obeying your boss, but having a really bad attitude about it. Having a rebellious spirit just doing what you're supposed to do because you have to. In sincerity of heart. Play acting can also be that you obey when the boss is watching. Or when someone else who might tattle on you is watching. But then when you're on your own, you kind of do your own thing. Either you play around or you do the job the way you want to do it instead of the way you're told to do it. And play acting can also be flattery, bootlicking, pleasing your boss. He uses the phrase pleasing men. Doing things just um, in order that your boss will like you and maybe give you a raise, not because you're actually wanting to obey. Let's just think about each of those briefly. First, obedience with a rebellious heart. That's not true obedience you do what your boss says and then you go to lunch and rake him over the coals with your fellow employees, that's not obedience. If you're in your office and your boss says, I want you to go and I want you to make a pot of coffee and you turn to go make the pot of coffee but on your way out you're rolling your eyes at your boss or fuming in your heart or... That's not real obedience either. Or... Obeying your boss at work and then coming home at night and sitting around the dinner table with your wife and in front of your children talking about how bad of a guy he is. None of those are really obedience. Those are all play-acting because your heart is really rebellious. Obedience is also play-acting when it's obedience because the boss or someone else is watching. That's not real obedience either. I'll give you a couple of examples. One of them I read about recently uh, in a book... Uh, gentleman was talking about when he was in seminary above where his classrooms were, there was a business uh, on the next floor uh, where everybody was using typewriters all day long. And there were times where you could hear that there was a lull in the typewriters and people were goofing off. But he said you could always tell when the boss came back into the room because all of a sudden, all at once, all the typewriters started up again. That's not real obedience. That's play acting. Just doing it because someone's watching same thing, I've used this example before, but when I was younger, I worked at a record store. And when the boss was there and there was a lull in the shopping, we would all dust or organize the CDs and those kinds of things. But when the boss wasn't there and there was a lull in the shopping, we'd turn the music up really loud and play basketball with little balls of tape. See, that's not obedience. That's actually not just not obedience, it's stealing because we were getting paid for working when we weren't actually working. And thirdly, we said flattery is not true obedience. Buttering up to your boss so that you'll get something in return is not true obedience. Now, I get this a lot, not with people who work uh, under me, um, but with people who come to our church that are hoping to get some kind of assistance, some kind of food or money, etc. And it's really amazing um, that uh, lots of them People can quote lots of Bible verses when when they need the church to help them. In other words, they don't ever go to church. They're not interested in coming to our church. And I don't don't tell them that they need to. Uh, The help is free. But it's amazing that some people think that I've got to act really religious in order to get your help. And so they'll spend 15 or 20 minutes here that they don't want to be here. And probably I've got other things to do, but they're talking religion to me and so I'm doing it back with them. And all they're doing is buttering me up the whole time. And there are lots of employees who are really good at that. They do what their boss asks and they do it in a really special way even. And they make sure that their boss sees how well they're doing it because they want their boss to give them a promotion. Or they want their boss to give them a raise. Or they want to get a leg up on their coworkers, Or they want to just boost their own Ego, they're man pleasers, as Paul uses the term here in verse 22. So that's not obedience either. Rather than all these things, true obedience is when we do our work, the end of the verse, in the fear of the Lord. Because the Lord sees what we're doing, even when the boss doesn't see, because the Lord will reward us even if the boss doesn't. Because the Lord is the one whom we ought to fear and the one whom we ought to please. Not because we're so worried about pleasing the boss. We'll talk more about fearing the Lord when we get to number four. But number two again was that play acting is not real work. Number three, this is the most encouraging thing for me. I hope it will be for you as well. Number three, no job is secular. No matter what you do, your job is not a secular job. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. The phrase do your work heartily is literally do your work from the soul. Work from your soul. Whatever you're doing, your work is to be spiritual activity. That's why he says do it as for the Lord and not for men. We're not simply working to get paid. We're not simply working because the boss is telling us what to do. Those things are true, but there's something more than that. We're working from our soul. We're working to please the Lord. And you need to remember that when Paul is writing the book of Colossians, he's not writing by and large to preachers and missionaries and seminary professors. There may have been one or two men who were paid by the church. To do work for the Lord. But by and large, he's writing to people who were probably shepherds and grocers and weavers and carpenters and stay-at-home moms and fishermen and cooks and teachers and all kinds of other things in this community. And most of these people, or at least many of them, may have been performing these tasks as slaves. So it's to these kind of people who may have not even been doing jobs that they picked for themselves, much less jobs that seemed really spiritual and important. It's to these kind of people that he says, whatever you do is spiritual work. Whatever you do is God's work for you. The key is whatever you do. So you need to think about how can your daily routine be done as to the Lord? If you're loading trucks or cleaning houses or seeing patients or filing reports or raising children or making candy or selling metal or filling out proposals, whatever it is you do for a living, how can I do that from the soul for the Lord? How can it be spiritual work? I want to give you just four quick suggestions on how your work can be spiritual work. I didn't make these up on my own. These come from John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, so you can look at them and read more later. But just briefly, four ways to make sure that your work is really spiritual work and not just secular work. Number one, by continually relying throughout the day on God's strength to help you do what you do and to help you do it well. This is what Paul means in 1 Thessalonians when he says, pray without ceasing. That all day long, whatever it is you're doing, you're saying, God, I need you to help me. I need you to help me have the right attitude. I need you to help me think straight so that I can do this right. I need you to help me with the strength, bodily strength maybe, that I need to do this task that's ahead. I need you to help me be there on time. I need you to help me say the right thing. I need you. I need you. I need you. That's one way that a secular job can be spiritual work. A second way a secular job can be spiritual work is by working and acting in such a way as to be a good commercial, a good advertisement for Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul uses the phrase adorning the gospel. Uh, He doesn't mean that we're adding something to the gospel, but the picture is that the gospel is there. And in most people's eyes, the gospel is really plain and boring. Until they see us begin to live its principles out, and then our lives begin to shine like jewels, and the gospel begins to look as precious as it is. One of the best places that we can do that is at work, because there's eight hours a day for most of us where other people get to see whether or not we're going to live what we say we believe. So that's the second way your work can be spiritual work. A third way is, and this is one that I wouldn't have thought of myself, by mirroring God's creative activity, by mirroring the image of God in your creativity at work, your productivity at work, and your ingenuity at work. That you use the mind and the talents God has given you to the best of your ability to make the best table that can be made. Or to load the truck as full and as organized as possible. Or to teach the children as well as you possibly can. Whatever your job is, that you do it as well as you can because that's the way God does everything. And in doing it that way, God is pleased. He says, look at my son or look at my daughter. They're becoming like me. They're doing everything that they do with all their heart and wanting to do it well. Fourth way that you can make a secular job, a spiritual work for the Lord is because when you work, most of you, in your daily routine, you're earning money that you can bless other people with. That you can bless missionaries with to go to the Tuareg. That you can bless people that come to our church who need food and who need to hear the gospel with. See, every day that you earn money, you're not just earning it for yourself and your family. You are doing that. But you're earning it so that you can bless this church, so that you can bless this neighborhood, so that you can bless the nations. Because of your work every day, I get to do my work and get paid for it. So I'm thankful that people work. So every job, whatever, whatever it may be, is not secular, it's spiritual. If you do it for these reasons and with these things in mind. A Christian should never say about their job, well, it puts food on the table. If that's all your job does, then you're not doing it as unto the Lord. You're simply doing it for men, namely yourself. So, no job is secular. Number four, God is our payroll manager. Many of you that work in larger places, there's someone that's in charge of your payroll. Well, ultimately, the most important paycheck doesn't come from your boss or from your company, but from God. And Paul calls it in verse 25, the reward of the verse 24, the reward of the inheritance. He says we should work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We're working because God's going to reward us for serving Him. Somebody says, oh, I get it now. Instead of working so that men will give me everything I want, I work so that God will give me everything I want. That's not what Paul means. Paul is not teaching us to be selfish here. In reality, the reward of the inheritance he's talking about is described more fully in Revelation 4, where... It speaks about crowns that people in heaven have on their heads that are rewards from God. What do they do with those crowns? They don't go around looking at the crowns. They don't go around holding the crowns for themselves. They take the crowns off of their heads and they cast them at the feet of Jesus so that they can better worship Jesus through these rewards that God has given him. So what Paul is saying here is you're going to get a reward from God. Yes, yes. And the reward is a crown. We don't know if he means a literal, physical crown or if he just means some kind of a metaphor that describes the fact that when we're in heaven, the more obedient we've been on earth, the more we'll be able to worship God in heaven. The greater capacity we'll have to glorify God in heaven. Did you ever think of that? The more obedient you are on earth, the greater capacity you're going to have to understand and glorify God in heaven. If you're disobedient on earth, You may get to heaven, but you'll be saved just as though being snatched out of the fire. But those who are saved and who walk with the Lord faithfully on this earth will have some sort of crown, some sort of something that's going to enable us to glorify Jesus when we get there. That's what Paul is about. That's why we work for the Lord, not simply for our bosses. That's why we obey our bosses under the Lord, because it increases our ability to glorify Jesus when we get to heaven. And notice the alternative in verse 25. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Hear what Paul's saying? Insubmissiveness in the office is not simply foolish, it's wrong, it's sinful. Not being a good employee is not simply stupid because if I'm not a good employee, I won't get the raise at the end of the month or at the end of the year. Not being a good employee is wrong, Paul says. It's sin. Failure to honor Christ as an employee comes with setbacks. It comes with consequences, he says. Some of those consequences may be from your boss or from your company. And here he's speaking to slaves and masters who are Christians, Christian slaves who work for Christian masters. And what he says is when he says that you'll be uh, you'll be given consequences and that without partiality. What he means is just because you're a Christian and your boss is a Christian doesn't mean your boss is going to let you be a bum of an employee. But I think what he also means is that God treats us without partiality. God is going to dole out consequences for those of us who claim to know him, but who don't live like we really do. There aren't going to be any loopholes when we stand before God's judgment seat for how we did our job or anything else. God's not going to say, well, you had a difficult boss, and so it didn't matter that you were were not submissive or that you were late every day. He's not going to say, well, you know what, your job was lousy. They didn't pay you what you deserved. And so it doesn't really matter that you pilfered things from the company. He's not going to say, well, there were personality conflicts at the office, so it didn't matter that sometimes your boss told you to do this and you did the other thing. And he's not going to say at the judgment seat, oh, you were a slave. And being a slave is a bad thing, so therefore your disobedience is justified. If Paul can speak to slaves and say, you must obey your masters in everything, then the commandment for us is even stronger as well as we are treated in this country. We will either receive the reward of the inheritance from God or we will receive the reward of those who do what is wrong. So, number four, again, God is our payroll manager, ultimately. God's the one who gives the rewards. And number five, uh, finally, for employees here, is that Jesus is the model employee. You want to know how this all fleshes out and what it looks like, you look to Jesus. Now keep your finger in Colossians three because we're going to come back to it in just a moment. But I just want to reference First Peter two, eighteen through twenty five. Because in First Peter two, um, Peter is going to say almost the exact thing that Paul is saying in Colossians three. But he's going to go one step further and show us how Jesus is the example of how we are to obey our masters. First Peter two eighteen, servants. The word there is literally, literally the same word in Colossians, slaves. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You see what Peter is doing here? His main command in verse 18 is servants be submissive to your master. Same as Paul in Colossians 3. How do we do it, though? Well, verse 21, we follow in Jesus' steps. We imitate Jesus. How do we do that? Verse 23, we entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously. When you trust God, you will obey. We've been saying that with Abraham. When you trust God, you'll obey God. Peter's saying if you trust God, you'll obey your employer, even if he's unreasonable. If you trust God who does what's right, you'll believe that God will take care of you, even if you have a bad boss you trust God, you will obey. I want you to notice one other thing here, that Jesus isn't just given as our example. He's also uh, said to be the ability for us to obey. Verse 21, Christ suffered for you. And verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Why did Jesus die on the tree? Why did He bear our sins in His body on the tree? Verse 24, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In the context, Jesus died so that we would obey our bosses. So we would stop being insubmissive employees and start being obedient employees. That's why Jesus died. Or as Paul has been teaching us back in Colossians 2, in Christ we don't have to go on sinning. We just don't. We've been set free from sin's power. And we've been set free from sin's penalty. Colossians 2:13. When you were dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, when you used to be a horrible employee that didn't do anything your boss asked you to do, showed up late every day, always cursed your boss behind his back, even then, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus is our example, and Jesus is the one who died so that we could change and so that we could be forgiven when we fail. So here's the summary, employees. The boss is boss, period. Play acting is not real work. No job, whatever it is, is a secular job, if you're a Christian. God is our chief payroll manager, and Jesus is the model employee. Now, let me just turn to chapter 4, verse 1 of Colossians, and give you two principles for management, and then we're through. We're going to spend less time on these First of all, because Paul gives them less time. And second of all, probably, uh, as was the case in Colossae, a much smaller number of us are actually bosses than our employees. Some of us are bosses. Some of us will be in charge of employees someday. So we need to hear what he says. And some of us uh, are folks that hire day laborers. Some of us have someone come in to cut our grass or to do other work for us. And this applies to us as well when we are hiring folks out to work for us. So what does Paul say to masters or employees? Employers, excuse me. Number one, employees are real people. If you're a boss, remember that your employees are real human beings. They are made in the image of God. And therefore, verse one, they deserve justice and fairness. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. They're humans. They deserve to be treated with dignity. what does he mean, treat them with justice and fairness? Let me just give you a few ideas. Treat people with justice and fairness in the way that you talk to them. You don't have to be a boss to apply most of these things. You talk to people justly and fairly. You're not condescending towards them. In fact, in a parallel passage in Ephesians 6, where Paul is talking about uh, employers or masters, he says... To the masters, give up threatening. If you're a boss, you don't get people to do what you want them to do by threatening them. Neither do you do that if you're a father or mother or husband. Also, if you're going to talk to people with justice and fairness, you don't show favoritism towards one person over another in the workplace. Justice and fairness also in the way that you compensate your employees. If any of you are ever in a position to pay staff members, or to pay someone who is working for you in your yard or so on, you pay them justly and fairly. That means if they're from uh, a Hispanic background, you don't cheat them because they're willing to work for less money. That's not fair. That's not just. Just because someone is from a poor country that you treat them less than a white person. Leviticus 19.13 says something else about compensating those who work for you. It says the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. That's someone who cuts your grass or someone who comes to, to do some plumbing work for you. If someone does work for you, you pay them right then that day, says the Bible. You don't let them come and work depending on and needing that money and say, well, I'll get a check to you next week. Justice and fairness extends to how you discipline people that might work for you. The best example I could think of this is from the Jetsons. You remember the Jetsons? What was George Jetson's boss's name? Mr. Spacely. If you ever saw the show, every time George Jetson ever did anything remotely, possibly that could be construed as wrong, what did Mr. Spacely always say? You're fired. He was always getting fired. That's a comical example, but the point is, the point of what Paul is saying is, if you're in charge of people that work underneath you and they make mistakes, you don't overreact. Yes, you deal justly. And so if someone cheats you or someone is late to work, you take the appropriate steps, but you don't overreact. And that's, again, a principle that can be applied in our homes and churches and other things as well. Justice and fairness also uh, extends to what you expect from people that work for you. You don't expect them to do things that they're not capable of doing. You don't expect them to do more than what you're paying them to do. Example, Pharaoh in Exodus. I want you to make the same amount of bricks that you were making last week, but this week you've got to go and get your own materials. That's not dealing fairly. So if you're in charge of employees, you find out what the ability is that they have, you find out how long they're going to work, and you give them a reasonable expectation. I'll give you another way to treat your employees fairly and your expectations of them when we were in colorado there was a leather shop there was all sorts of shops we were in a little touristy town shops everywhere depending on money from tourists uh, mainly during the summer seasons and then a little bit during the ski season and many tourists are in on the weekends right most of you go on vacation you're gone on the weekend well that's this place Estes Park, colorado So all these shops are depending on tourists on the weekends. And we were walking down the strip, and there was one shop that sold only items made out of leather. Leather bags, leather jackets, leather wallets, all sorts of things out of leather. And they had a big sign in their window. I love this sign. We are closed on Sunday so that our employees can be with their families and can worship if they choose to. That's dealing fairly and justly with your employees giving them reasonable expectations, giving them the opportunity to take care of their family and to take care of their needs for getting spiritual food. So if you are in any position to have someone work for you, these are all uh, helpful tips, I hope. The summary would be this, as Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you were the one being uh, paid to do this work, how much would you think would be fair to get paid? If you were the one having to work this shift, What would you expect should be done in a certain amount of time? A lot of things would be different in a lot of workplaces if the bosses would just let the employees run the show for one day so they could see what it was like to have other people in charge. And that leads me to my final point, the second point about employers. If you're an employer, you're in charge in some situation, remember that you too have a boss. Second part of verse 1. He says, grant your slaves justice and mercy. Why? Knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So you do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and you do unto others as you would have God do unto you. That's the lesson of verse 1b. Do unto others as you would have God do unto you. And the best way that I can explain that is not to try to explain it, but just to read to you the parable of the wicked slave in Matthew 18. Uh, 23 through 35. If you'd like to turn there, you can. I won't be um, taking you back specifically to Colossians 3 or 4. Matthew 18:23 through 35. The lesson of this parable is: Do unto others as you would have God do unto you. Jesus says, "For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves." When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents and your footnote may note to you that that's billions and billions of dollars. Um, Jesus is intentionally giving a figure here that is way beyond imagination. He could never pay this back. One who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So he didn't just say, "Okay, I'll give you time. He said, Don't worry about it at all. Consider it paid for. Verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, a much smaller number. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. Same story repeated. But he was unwilling and went back and, went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the mourners, torturers, excuse me, until he should repay all that was owed him. Here's the key, verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Lesson. Do unto others as you would have God do unto you. Lesson for those who are employers. What if God treated you the way that you treat your employees? Lesson for husbands. What if God treated you the way you treat your wife? Lesson for parents. What if God talked to you the way you talk to your children? If you treat your employees your children your spouse like this man treated his fellow slave god will treat you the way that the slave ended up being treated so the way that we treat others is serious business whether we're wives or husbands or parents or children or employees or employers the way that we treat others is serious business in the sight of the Lord. and that brings me just to close by asking you how are you doing in these areas both in the areas of the family that we talked about last week and the areas of the workplace that we're speaking about tonight. Has God convicted you last week or this week about sins that you're committing against your spouse or your kids or kids to your parents or employees to your employer or employer to your employees? Is God convicting you? And if He is, He also holds out to you forgiveness in Christ. There's forgiveness, but only for those who repent of these ways that God is convicting them of. So just ask yourself right now in these last few moments, what do I need to repent of? What have I heard from the book of Colossians the last two Wednesday nights that I need to repent of? Would you take now these dying moments to start to speak to the Lord about that? to ask Him to forgive you and to plead with Him to give you the desire to really turn from your sin. And then would you go home tonight and on your way to work tomorrow and begin to live what He says. I'm not going to pray uh, out loud. I'm just going to let you have some moments to pray silently about these things. And then I'll say amen in a moment and we'll stand and sing together.